Section 18 of The Natural History, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Natural History, Volume 6, by Pliny the Elder. Translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Section 18, Book 30, Chapters 1 to 12. Book 30, Remedies Derived from Living Creatures. Chapter 1, The Origin of the Magic Art. In former parts of this work, I have had occasion more than once, when the subject demanded it, to refute the impostures of the magic art, and it is now my intention to continue still further my exposure thereof. Indeed, there are few subjects on which more might be profitably said, which only that, being as it is, the most deceptive of all known arts, it has exercised the greatest influence in every country and in nearly every age. And no one can be surprised at the extent of its influence and authority when he reflects that by its own energies it has embraced and thoroughly amalgamated with itself the three other sciences which hold the greatest sway upon the mind of man. That it first originated in medicine, no one entertains a doubt, or that, under the plausible guise of promoting health, it insinuated itself among mankind as a higher and more holy branch of the medical art. Then, in the next place, to promises the most seductive and the most flattering, it has added all the resources of religion, a subject upon which, at the present day, man is still entirely in the dark. Last of all, to complete its universal sway, it has incorporated with itself the astrological art, there being no man who is not desirous to know his future destiny, or who is not ready to believe that this knowledge may with the greatest certainty be obtained by observing the face of the heavens. The senses of men being thus enthralled by a threefold bond, the art of magic has attained an influence so mighty that at the present day even it holds sway throughout a great part of the world and rules the kings of kings in the east. Chapter 2. When and where the art of magic originated, by what persons it was first practised. There is no doubt that this art originated in Persia, under Zoroaster, this being a point upon which authors are generally agreed, but whether there was only one Zoroaster, or whether in later times there was a second person of that name, is a matter which still remains undecided. Eudoxus, who has endeavoured to show that of all branches of philosophy, the magic art is the most illustrious and the most beneficial, informs us that this Zoroaster existed 6,000 years before the death of Plato, an assertion in which he is supported by Aristotle. Hermippus, again, an author who has written with the greatest exactness on all particulars connected with this art, and has commented upon the two millions of verses left by Zoroaster, besides completing indexes to his several works, has left a statement that Agonases was the name of the master from whom Zoroaster derived his doctrines, and that he lived 5,000 years before the time of the Trojan War. 
The first thing, however, that must strike us with surprise is the fact that this art and the traditions connected with it should have survived for so many ages, all written commentaries thereon having perished in the meanwhile. And this, too, when there was no continuous succession of adepts, no professors of note, to ensure their transmission. For how few there are, in fact, who know anything, even by hearsay, about the only professors of this art, whose names have come down to us, Apusaurus and Zeratus of Medea, Marmarus and Arabantificus of Babylonia, and Tarmoendus of Assyria, men who have left not the slightest memorials of their existence. But the most surprising thing of all is that Homer should be totally silent upon this art in his account of the Trojan War, while in his story of the wanderings of Ulysses, so much of the work should be taken up with it that we may justly conclude that the poem is based upon nothing else. If, indeed, we are willing to grant that his accounts of Proteus and of the songs of the Sirens are to be understood in this sense, and that the stories of Circe and of the summoning up of the shades below bear reference solely to the practices of sorcerers. And then, too, to come to more recent times, no one has told us how the art of sorcery reached Telmessus, a city devoted to all the services of religion, or at what period it came over and reached the matrons of Thessaly, whose name has long passed, in our part of the world, as the appellation of those who practice an art originally introduced among themselves even from foreign lands. For in the days of the Trojan War, Thessaly was still contented with such remedies as she owed to the skill of Chiron, and her only lightnings were the lightnings hurled by Mars. Indeed, for my own part, I am surprised that the imputation of magical practices should have so strongly attached to the people once under the sway of Achilles, that Menander even, a man unrivaled for perception and literary knowledge, has entitled one of his comedies, The Thessalian Matron and has therein described the devices practised by the females of that country in bringing down the moon from the heavens. I should have been inclined to think that Orpheus had been the first to introduce into a country so near his own certain medical superstitions based upon the practice of medicine, were it not the fact that Thrace, his native land, was at that time totally a stranger to the magic art. The first person, so far as I can ascertain, who wrote upon magic, and whose works are still in existence, was Osthanes, who accompanied Xerxes, the Persian king, in his expedition against Greece. It was he who first disseminated, as it were, the germs of this monstrous art, and tainted therewith all parts of the world through which the Persians passed. Authors who have made diligent inquiries into this subject make mention of a second Zoroaster, a native of Proconesus, as living a little before the time of Osthanes, that it was this same Osthanes, more particularly, that inspired the Greeks, not with a fondness only, but a rage for the art of magic, is a fact beyond all doubt. Though at the same time, I would remark that in the most ancient times, and indeed almost invariably, it was in this branch of science that was sought the highest point of celebrity and of literary renown. At all events, Pythagoras, we find, Empedocles, Democritus and Plato, crossed the seas, in order to attain a knowledge thereof, submitting to speak the truth, more to the evils of exile than to the mere inconveniences of travel. Returning home, it was upon the praises of this art that they expatiated, it was this that they held as one of their grandest mysteries. 
It was Democritus, too, who first drew attention to Apollobates of Coptos, to Dardanus and to Phoenix. The works of Dardanus he sought in the tomb of that personage, and his own were composed in accordance with the doctrines there found. That these doctrines should have been received by any portion of mankind, and transmitted to us by the aid of memory, is to me surprising beyond anything I can conceive. All the particulars there found are so utterly incredible, so utterly revolting, that those even who admire Democritus in other respects are strong in their denial that these works were really written by him. Their denial, however, is in vain, for it was he, beyond all doubt, who had the greatest share in fascinating men's minds with these attractive chimeras. There is also a marvellous coincidence in the fact that the two arts, medicine, I mean, and magic, were developed simultaneously. Medicine by the writings of Hippocrates, and magic by the works of Democritus. About the period of the Peloponnesian War, which was waged in Greece in the year of the city of Rome, 300. There is another sect also of adepts in the magic art who derived their origin from Moses, Yanes, and Lotopeia, Jews by birth, but many thousand years posterior to Zoroaster, and as much more recent again is the branch of magic cultivated in Cyprus. In the time, too, of Alexander the Great, this profession received no small accession to its credit from the influence of a second Osthanes, who had the honour of accompanying that prince in his expeditions, and who evidently, beyond all doubt, travelled over every part of the world. Chapter 3. Whether magic was ever practised in Italy, at what period the Senate first forbade human sacrifices. It is clear that there are early traces still existing of the introduction of magic into Italy. In our laws of the Twelve Tables, for instance, besides other convincing proofs, which I have already noticed in a preceding book, at last, in the year of the city 657, Cnaeus Cornelius Lentulus and Publius Licinius Crassus being consuls. A decree forbidding human sacrifices was passed by the Senate, from which period the celebration of these horrid rites ceased in public, and for some time altogether. Chapter 4. The Druids of the Gallic Provinces The Gallic provinces, too, were pervaded by the magic art, and that even down to a period within memory. For it was the Emperor Tiberius that put down their druids, and all that tribe of wizards and physicians. But why make further mention of these prohibitions, with reference to an art which has now crossed the very ocean even, and has penetrated to the void recesses of nature? At the present day, struck with fascination, Britannia still cultivates this art, and that, with ceremonials so august that she might almost seem to have been the first to communicate them to the people of Persia. To such a degree are nations throughout the whole world, totally different as they are, and quite unknown to one another, in accord upon this one point. Such being the fact, then, we cannot too highly appreciate the obligation that is due to the Roman people for having put an end to those monstrous rites in accordance with which to murder a man 
was to do an act of the greatest devoutness, and to eat his flesh was to secure the highest blessings of health. Chapter 5 The Various Branches of Magic According to what Ostanes tells us, there are numerous sorts of magic. It is practiced with water, for instance, with balls, by the aid of the air, of the stars, of lamps, basins, hatchets, and numerous other appliances. Means by which it engages to grant a foreknowledge of things to come, as well as converse with ghosts and spirits of the dead. All these practices, however, have been proved by the Emperor Nero, in our own day, to be so many false and chimerical illusions. Entertaining as he did a passion for the magic art, unsurpassed even by his enthusiastic love for the music of the lyre and for the songs of tragedy, so strangely did his elevation to the highest point of human fortune act upon the deep-seated vices of his mind. It was his leading desire to command the gods of heaven, and no aspiration could he conceive more noble than this. Never did person lavish more favours upon any one of the arts, and for the attainment of this, his favourite object, nothing was wanting to him, neither riches, nor power, nor aptitude at learning, and what not besides, at the expense of a suffering world. It is a boundless and indubitable proof, I say, of the utter falsity of this art, that such a man as Nero abandoned it, and would to heaven that he had consulted the shades below, and any other spirits as well, in order to be certified in his suspicions, rather than commission the denizens of stews and brothels to make those inquisitions of his, with reference to the objects of his jealousy. For assuredly, there can be no superstition, however barbarous and ferocious the rites which it sanctions, that is not more tolerant than the imaginations which he conceived, and owing to which, by a series of blood-stained crimes, our abodes were peopled with ghosts. Chapter 6. The Subterfuges Practiced by the Magicians The magicians, too, have certain modes of evasion. As, for instance, that the gods will not obey or even appear to persons who have freckles upon the skin. Was this, perchance, the obstacle in Nero's way? As for his limbs, there was nothing deficient in them. And then, besides, he was at liberty to make choice of the days prescribed by the magic ritual. It was an easy thing for him to make choice of sheep, whose colour was no other than perfectly black. And as to sacrificing human beings, there was nothing in the world that gave him greater pleasure. The Magian Tiridates was at his court, having repaired thither in token of our triumph over Armenia, accompanied by a train which cost dear to the provinces through which it passed. For the fact was that he was unwilling to travel by water. It being a maxim with the adepts in this art, that it is improper to spit into the sea or to profane that element by any other of the evacuations that are inseparable from the infirmities of human nature. He brought with him, too, several other magi, and went so far as to initiate the emperor in the repasts of the craft. And yet the prince, for all he had bestowed a kingdom upon the stranger, found himself unable to receive at his hands in return this art. We may rest, fully persuaded, then, that magic is a thing detestable in itself. Frivolous and lying as it is, it still bears, however, some shadow of truth upon it. The reflected, in reality, 
by the practices of those who study the arts of secret poisoning and not the pursuits of magic. Let any one picture to himself the lies of the magicians of former days when he learns what has been stated by the grammarian Apion, a person whom I remember seeing myself when young. He tells us that the plant Sinocephalia, known in Egypt as Osiritis, is useful for divination and is a preservative against all the malpractices of magic, but that if a person takes it out of the ground entire, he will die upon the spot. He asserts also that he himself had raised the spirits of the dead in order to make enquiry of Homer in reference to his native country and his parents. But he does not dare, he tells us, disclose the answer he received. Chapter 7 Opinions of the Magicians Relative to the Mole Five Remedies Derived from It let the following stand as a remarkable proof of the frivolous nature of the magic art. Of all animals, it is the mole that the magicians admire most, a creature that has been stamped with condemnation by nature in so many ways, doomed as it is to perpetual blindness, and adding to this darkness a life of gloom in the depths of the earth and a state more nearly resembling that of the dead and buried. There is no animal in the entrails of which they put such implicit faith, no animal, they think, better suited for the rites of religion. So much so, indeed, that if a person swallows the heart of a mole, fresh from the body and still palpitating, he will receive the gift of divination, they assure us, and a foreknowledge of future events. Toothache, they assert may be cured by taking the tooth of a live mole and attaching it to the body. As to other statements of theirs relative to this animal, we shall draw attention to them on the fitting occasions, and shall only add here that one of the most probable of all their assertions is that the mole neutralises the bite of the shrew mouse, seeing that, as already stated, the very earth even that is found in the rut of a cartwheel act as a remedy in such a case. Chapter 8. The other remedies derived from living creatures, classified according to the respective diseases. Remedies for toothache. But to proceed with the remedies for toothache, the magicians tell us that it may be cured by using the ashes of the head of a dog that has died in a state of madness. The head, however, must be burnt without the flesh and the ashes injected with oil of cypress into the ear on the side affected. For the same purpose also, the left eye-tooth of a dog is used, the gum of the affected tooth being lanced with it. One of the vertebrae, also of a dragon, or of an anhydrous, which is a male white serpent. The eye-tooth, too, of this last, is used for scarifying the gums. And when the pain affects the teeth of the upper jaw, they attach to the patient two of the upper teeth of the serpent, and similarly, two of the lower ones for toothache in the lower jaw. Persons who go in pursuit of the crocodile anoint themselves with the fat of this animal. The gums are also scarified with the frontal bones of a lizard, taken from it at full moon and not allowed to touch the ground, or else the mouth is rinsed with a decoction of dog's teeth in wine, 
boiled down to one half. Ashes of dog's teeth mixed with honey are useful for difficult dentition in children, and a dentifrice is similarly prepared from them. Hollow teeth are plugged with ashes of burnt mouse dung or with a lizard's liver, dried. To eat a snake's heart or to wear it, attached to the body, is considered highly efficacious. There are some among the magicians who recommend a mouse to be eaten twice a month as a preventative of toothache. Earthworms, boiled in oil and injected into the ear on the side affected, afford considerable relief. Ashes, too, of burnt earthworms, introduced into carrier's teeth, make them come out easily, and used as a friction, they allay pains in such of the teeth as are sound. The proper way of burning them is in an earthen portrait. They are useful, too, boiled with root of the mulberry tree in squill vinegar, and employed as a colutory for the teeth. The small worm that is found in the plant known as Venus bath is remarkably useful, introduced into a hollow tooth, and as to the cabbage caterpillar, it will make hollow teeth come out by the mere contact only. The bugs that are found upon mallows are injected into the ears, beaten up with oil of roses. The small grits of sand that are found in the horns of snails introduced into hollow teeth remove the pain instantaneously. Ashes of empty snail shells mixed with myrrh are good for the gums. The ashes also of a serpent burnt with salt in an earthen pot and injected with oil of roses into the ear opposite to the side affected, or else the slough of a snake warmed with oil and torch pine resin and injected into either ear. Some persons add frankincense and oil of roses, a preparation which, of itself, introduced into hollow teeth, makes them come out without pain. It is all a fiction, in my opinion, to say that white snakes cast this slough about the rising of the dog star, for such a thing has never been seen in Italy, and it is still more improbable that sloughing should take place at so late a period in the warmer climates. We find it stated also that this slough, even when it has been kept for some time, mixed with wax, will extract a tooth very expeditiously, if applied thereto. A snake's tooth also, attached to the body as an amulet, allays toothache. Some persons think that it is a good remedy to catch a spider with the left hand, to beat it up with oil of roses, and then to inject it into the ear on the side affected. The small bones of poultry, preserved in a hole in a wall, the medullary channel being left intact, will immediately cure toothache, they say, if the tooth is touched or the gum scarified therewith, care being taken to throw away the bone the moment the operation is performed. A similar result is obtained by using raven's dung, wrapped in wool and attached to the body, or else sparrow's dung, warmed with oil and injected into the ear on the side affected. This last remedy, however, is productive of an intolerable itching, for which reason it is considered a better plan to rub the part with the ashes of young sparrows burnt upon twigs mixed with vinegar for the purpose. Chapter 9. Remedies for Offensive Odours and Sores of the Mouth To impart sweetness to the breath 
it is recommended to rub the teeth with ashes of burnt mouse dung and honey. Some persons are in the habit of mixing fennel root. To pick the teeth with a vulture's feather is productive of a sour breath, but to use a porcupine's quill for that purpose greatly strengthens the teeth. Ulcers of the tongue and lips are cured by taking a decoction of swallows boiled in honeyed wine, and chapped lips are healed by using goose grease or poultry grease, wool grease mixed with nut galls, white spider's webs, or the fine cobwebs that are found adhering to the beams of roofs. If the inside of the mouth has been scalded with any hot substance, bitch's milk will afford an immediate cure. Chapter 10. Remedies for Spots Upon the Face Wool grease, mixed with Corsican honey, which by the way is considered the most acrid honey of all, removes spots upon the face. Applied with oil of roses in wool, it causes scurf upon the face to disappear. Some persons add butter to it. In cases of morphew, the spots are first pricked with a needle and then rubbed with dog's gall. The livid spots and bruises on the face, the lights of a ram or sheep, are cut fine and applied warm, or else pigeon's dung is used. Goose grease or poultry grease is a good preservative of the skin of the face. For lichens, a liniment is used, made of mouse dung in vinegar or of the ashes of a hedgehog mixed with oil. But when these remedies are employed, it is recommended first to ferment the face with nitre dissolved in vinegar. Maladies of the face are also removed by employing the ashes of the small broad snail that is so commonly found mixed with honey. Indeed, the ashes of all snails are of an inspissative nature, and are possessed of certain calorific and detersive properties. Hence it is that they form an ingredient in caustic applications, and are used in the form of a liniment for itch scabs, leprous sores, and freckles on the face. I find it stated that a certain kind of ant, known by the name of Herculania, is beaten up with the addition of a little salt, and used for the cure of these diseases. The buprestis is an insect, but rarely found in Italy, and very similar to a scarabaeus, with long legs. Concealed among the grass, it is very liable to be swallowed unobserved, by oxen in particular, and the moment it comes in contact with the gall, it causes such a degree of inflammation that the animal bursts asunder, a circumstance to which the insect owes its name. Applied topically with he-goat suet, it removes lichens on the face, owing to its corrosive properties, as previously stated. A vulture's blood, beaten up with cedar resin and root of white chameleon, a plant which we have already mentioned, and covered with a cabbage leaf, when applied, is good for the cure of leprosy. The same, too, with the legs of locusts, beaten up with he-goat suet. Pimples are treated with poultry grease beaten up and kneaded with onions. One very useful substance for the face is honey, in which the bees have died. But a sovereign detergent for that part is swan's grease, which has also the property of effacing wrinkles. Brand marks are removed by using pigeon's dung, diluted in vinegar. Chapter 11. Remedies for Affections of the Throat I find it stated that catars oppressive to the head may be cured by the patient kissing a mule's nostrils. 
affections of the ovula and pains in the fauces are alleviated by using the dung of lambs before they have begun to graze, dried in the shade. Diseases of the ovula are cured with the juices of a snail, pierced with a needle. The snail, however, must be then hung up in the smoke. The same maladies are treated also with ashes of burnt swallows, mixed with honey, a preparation which is equally good for affections of the tonsillary glands. Sheep's milk, used as a gargle, alleviates diseases of the fauces and tonsillary glands. Millipedes, bruised with pigeon's dung, are taken as a gargle, with raisin wine, and they are applied externally with dried figs and nitre for the purpose of soothing roughness of the fauces and catars. For such cases, too, snails should be boiled unwashed, the earth only being removed, and then pounded and administered to the patient in raisin wine. Some persons are of opinion that for these purposes, the snails of Astapalaya are the most efficacious, and they give the preference to the detersive preparation made from them. The parts affected are sometimes rubbed with a cricket, and affections of the tonsillary glands are alleviated by being rubbed with the hands of a person who has bruised a cricket. Chapter 12. Remedies for Quincy and Scrofula For Quincy, we have very expeditious remedies in goose gall, mixed with elaterium and honey, an owlet's brains, or the ashes of a burnt swallow taken in warm water, which last remedy we owe to the poet Ovid. But of all the remedies spoken of as furnished by the swallow, one of the most efficacious is that derived from the young of the wild swallow, a bird which may be easily recognised by the peculiar conformation of its nest. By far the most effectual, however, of them all, are the young of the bank swallow, that being the name given to the kind which builds its nest in holes on the banks of rivers. Many persons recommend the young of any kind of swallow as a food assuring us that the person who takes it need be in no apprehension of quincy for the whole of the ensuing year. The young of this bird are sometimes stifled and then burnt in a vessel with the blood, the ashes being administered to the patient with bread or in the drink. Some, however, mix with them the ashes of a burnt weasel in equal proportion. The same remedies are recommended also for scrofula, and they are administered for epilepsy once a day, in drink. Swallows preserved in salt are taken for quincy in doses of one drachma in drink. The nest, too, of the bird, taken internally, is said to be a cure for the same disease. Millipedes, it is thought, used in the form of a liniment, are peculiarly efficacious for quincy. Some persons also administer eleven of them bruised in one semi-sextarius of hydromel through a reed they being of no use whatever if once touched by the teeth. Other remedies mentioned are the broth of a mouse boiled with vervain, a thong of dogskin passed three times round the back, and pigeon's dung mixed with wine and oil, for the cure of rigidity of the muscles of the neck, and of epistotony, a twig of vitex taken from a kite's nest is attached to the body as an amulet. For ulcerated scrofula, a weasel's blood is employed, or the animal itself boiled in wine, but not in cases where the tumours have been opened with the knife. It is said too that a weasel eaten with the food is productive of a similar effect. Sometimes also it is burnt upon twigs and the ashes are applied with axle grease. In some instances a green lizard is attached to the body of the patient, a fresh one being substituted at the end of thirty days. 
Some persons preserve the heart of this animal in a small silver vessel as a cure for scrofula in females. Old snails, those found adhering to shrubs more particularly, are pounded with the shells on and applied as a liniment. Asps, too, are similarly employed, reduced to ashes and mixed with bull suet. Snakes fat also, diluted with oil, and the ashes of a burnt snake applied with oil or wax. It is a good plan also, in cases of scrofula, to eat the middle of a snake, the extremities being first removed, or to drink the ashes of the reptile, similarly prepared, and burnt in a new earthen vessel. They will be found much more efficacious, however, when the snake has been killed between the ruts made by wheels. It is recommended also to dig up a cricket with the earth about its hole and to apply it in the form of a liniment, to use pigeon's dung either by itself or with barley meal or oatmeal and vinegar, or else to apply the ashes of a burnt mole mixed with honey. Some persons apply the liver of this last animal, crumbled in the hands, due care being taken not to wash it off for three days. It is said, too, that a mole's right foot is a remedy for scrofula. Others, again, cut off the head of a mole, and after kneading it with earth, thrown up by those animals, divide it into tablets, and keep it in a pewter box for the treatment of all kinds of tumours, diseases of the neck, and the affections known as apostemes. In all such cases, the use of swine's flesh is forbidden to the patient. Taurus is the name usually given to an earth beetle, very similar to a tick in appearance, and which it derives from the diminutive horns with which it is furnished. Some persons call it the earth louse. From the earth thrown up by these insects, a liniment is prepared for scrofula and similar diseases, and for gout, the application not being washed off till the end of three days. This last remedy is effectual for a whole year, and all those other properties are attributed to it, which we have mentioned when speaking of crickets. There are some, again, who make a similar use of the earth thrown up by ants, while others attach to the patient as many earthworms as there are scrofulous tumours, the sores drying as the worms dry up. Some persons cut off the head and tail of a viper, as already mentioned, about the rising of the dog star, which done, they burn the middle and give a pinch of the ashes in three fingers for thrice seven days in drink. Such is the plan they use for the cure of scrofula. Others again pass round the scrofulous tumours, a linen thread, with which a viper has been suspended by the neck till dead. Millipedes are also used with one-fourth part of turpentine, a remedy which is equally recommended for the cure of all kinds of apostemes. End of section 18. Recording by Emma Jane Howe, Croxley Green, Hertfordshire, April 2021.